Todd, good to see you guys. Um, I feel like it's like a now an Old Testament ritual of some type of oil drenching before I take uh, the microphone over here to dripping. It was actually dripping off my hands onto the floor, and it just felt very spiritual uh, that something was happening. Maybe we're something new, but good to see everybody. And uh, thank you again. Just please heed um, everything that uh, uh, Todd Munger has shared. Um, just the six feet, 15 minute thing, it's going to create chaos at times with quarantining. Um, and I know we're here to get our education, which you are. And, you know, spending a few extra days alone in your room doing homework is not a bad thing. Um, but we just, uh, you got to be able to say, hey, I wasn't, you know, around 15 feet, six, 15 minutes, <laughs> 15 feet for six minutes, six feet for 15 minutes. Um, that really helps us masks the whole bit. Um, we just have to grind our way through this and stay focused on our education, even though we have a lot of social and emotional challenges um, that are going on for all of us. Um, I am the most mild-mannered person that you're ever going to meet. I really am. And I lost it the other day. I didn't, the other day, I think I lost it actually about an hour ago. Just frustration uh, uh, about things like, you know, however we each uh, get our uh, emotions out. And so all of us are facing some of those, are facing that. And I just really appreciate you coming to chapel and being a part of this. And, you know, I, I'm, I think I'm going to stop looking at that picture. Uh, every time I look up there and worship or get in here, it's just so backwards and so different. Uh, but the Lord is with us. It's a season. It's an assignment. It's, a, it's something you get to talk about for the rest of your life. I will tell you this. At 58 years of age, almost, I'm almost 58, um, a story is worth more than money. And when God gives you a significant story that you get to tell for the rest of your life, you've been handed something of gold. So we all get a story we get to talk about for the rest of our lives, um, walking through 2020 like this. But I'm proud of you. Be very easy just to uh, just not even try. But you guys are more than trying. You're achieving. And I just really put a gold medal around your neck for your resiliency. Um, to keep this great university alive and flourishing and meaningful. And I'm just so grateful they can't even really be here, the faculty, having to go through what they're going through to try and deliver the passion of their life, which is learning. The staff, um, HR, um, everybody, just this whole new job that we all have. And I just want to uh, tell you, for whatever words are worth, um, I just lend my words to how much I love and appreciate all of you greatly for what you're doing. Okay, a couple things. One is we have a way that we talk to students. Um, I have a direct text from the president right to your phone, but you have to sign up for it. And I, I don't do it, uh, I won't bombard your phone, but there's sometimes I have something I want to talk all to all the students about um, or something I want to remind you about. So here's how this works. Uh, first of all, that's our speaker this Friday. 
That is Sean Smith. Sean Smith is one of America's greatest uh, speakers, evangelists. Um, I can't tell you how powerful um, that will be two days from now on Friday. So make certain you sign up, get your roommates here. Sean's one of the great favorites. It's usually jammed to the rafters when Sean Smith is here. Uh, how many have ever heard Sean Smith before? Let me see your hands. Uh, Sean's dynamic. He will be here in two days. Physically, not on Zoom, he will be standing here as a human. And so he will be uh, preaching. So get word out and get signed up for this coming Friday chapel. Could you put up the NCU 2020 uh, slide? Do you have that, Chris? Is it right there? It what? The text? Yeah, the text slide. Here we go. So I want you to text NCU 2020 uh, to 313131. And what that does, it puts you on my personal presidential alert um, text. So if I want to talk to the entire school uh, to remind you of something, encourage you with something, this is the way I talk to everybody in one shot. So text NCU 2020 to 3131. Fantastic, fantastic. All right, let's jump into God's word. We're going to worship here in just a few minutes, but let's go to Ezekiel chapter 4. Ezekiel chapter 4. And then we're going to be at a portion of scripture in Luke chapter 2, which is not on the slides, but just the Ezekiel chapter 4. Uh, is on the screen for us. Unbelievable chapter in the Bible about a guy uh, lying naked um, for many, many days. It's one of the oddest stories. I came across it when I was young, and I just thought it was one of the most bizarre stories I'd ever read in my life. It says in Ezekiel chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, Now you, son of man, get yourself a brick, place it before you, and inscribe a city on it. And so... Ezekiel was told to grab some type of wet brick that was impressionable. And he inscribed um, on it a city's name of Jerusalem. Then lay siege against it, build a siege wall, raise up a ramp, pitch camps, and place battering rams against it all around. Now, he wasn't physically creating war for Jerusalem. He wasn't, but he was to create a model of what was about to happen spiritually. The Lord then called Ezekiel from this place of tremendous uh, focus of taking full control of his spiritual situation and recognizing the conditions wholly and totally that he was in. So the Lord said, I want you to inscribe on this brick and then I want you to build this model that represents this siege and this war that's coming against the sins of Israel. Then it says in verse 4, this isn't on the screen, As for you, lie down on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel on it. You shall bear the iniquity for the number of days that you, are, that you lie on it. This wasn't to remove the sin, it was to acknowledge the sin. So Ezekiel could not <coughs> remove the sin of Israel himself. But he was taking total responsibility for the sins of his city or the sins of his people. And so he was emblematic of the condition. And the Lord said, lie on your left side, for I assigned it to you a number of days corresponding to the years of their iniquity, 390 days. Now we talk about quarantining for 14 days. Here's 390 days that he was on this sin quarantine in which he had to embody and become this living witness of the condition of his nation and of his people, of his city. 
Thus you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. When you have completed there, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side, and bear the iniquity of the house of Judah. For I have assigned to you for 40 days, a day for each year. Then you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared prophesy and prophesy against it. And then he gave him some other instructions as well. It's a fascinating passage of scripture in which Ezekiel is taking responsibility and engagement for the conditions around him. Ezekiel was a man of God. He was a courageous uh, man of God who did not allow the countenance of the people to defeat him. He literally was last prophet standing in many ways. He was prophesying when the people's faces were like stone cold against him. And the Lord said, told him to take courage and to, and to stay faithful to his prophecy. But he was by himself and he was owning his moment. Um, I want to give you another passage of scripture real quick about Jesus in Luke chapter 2, and then bring these two together quickly before we worship. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 41, it says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Speaking of the parents of Jesus. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. <clears throat> but his parents were unaware of it because they were traveling in a caravan. I've lost my kids numerous times. I lost my kids at the state fair. Forgive me, I need to stay in my Zoom box. <sighs> Lord help me. Um, I've lost my kids many times. Never from my heart, but physically. My son Tyler, he would come up missing at the California state fair. There was 45, 50,000 people at the state fair. He's probably four years old. He's flat gone. So we would find him two hours later in some type of security tent, sitting on the counter, entertaining the police officers. It was a regular routine for him. I would take him to an NBA basketball game, the Sacramento Kings at Arco Arena, place to be packed, 17,000 people. He's four or five. I've lost him again. And I would always know where to go, go into the find security. And I went down in the basement. He's on the counter entertaining the police officers. This was a regular routine of his life. I've lost my kid. There's a panic the other day, we were home for some birthday parties, and my daughter lost her little three-year-old in the house, and she was screaming, where is she running around the yard and just was missing? Olivia was walking this way in the backyard. His mom was running around the front. She's running around. There's a terror when you lose track of your kid. The Bible says that Joseph and Mary... Um, they were there for the feast. His parents were unaware that the boy had stayed behind in Jerusalem, but supposed him to be in the caravan. And they went an entire day thinking somebody else was watching their kid. So it says here, um, they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. Maybe a cousin, maybe an auntie has him. He's, you know, he's 12. He's just, he's, he's lost. He's a junior hire. He's somewhat autonomous, but they're still responsible. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. So now they realize he's not in the caravan. So they bolt back a day's journey to Jerusalem. Then after three days, they found him. So they walked a day into the uh, toward home. They walked a day back. There's two. And then it was three more. 
and they finally found him. I wonder what went through those parents' mind as they were losing their minds. If I was separated unannounced from my uh, child, even in junior high, I'd be losing my mind. They found him in Jerusalem. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard Jesus were amazed at him, at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, why is it that you were looking for me? Do you not know that I had to be in my father's house? This uh, cryptic, amazing mic drop by Jesus that made his parents kind of stand still as this realization that this was not some normal child and it was not some normal moment. Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking. Do you not know, Jesus said, that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom, stature, and favor with God and with man. So, sorry about that. Somebody's calling me on my watch here. Here we go. Jesus, in this odd sequence of events, remains in Jerusalem while the caravan leaves. The parents don't realize for a day. They think he's with relatives. They come to the awareness that they've lost track of Jesus. Now, they wouldn't say they've lost track of the Lord because our comprehension of Jesus is probably somewhat, I mean, mother knew that it was supernatural because she had the encounter with the Holy Spirit. So Joseph and Mary understood but the full realization of what it meant to be the Son of God and when that manifestation of Jesus' ministry to this earth, how it would unfold and begin, it's starting to roll out now here in the temple. But there's a picture here of, of the reaction of somebody that has lost track of Jesus. I don't want us to miss the devotional or even the simplicity of almost a Sunday school-esque story about people taking swift responsibility for their conditions. This is what the Lord's been dealing with me about. Instead of griping, take full responsibility for this moment, Scott, that I've placed you in this moment. I've done enough reading in my life to know people have been, um, without announcement, placed in severe circumstances because of war or famine or pestilence or disease or whatever the reason. And they suddenly found themselves having to do their life from morning, noon, and night in a way that had never ever, they'd never contemplated or thought about doing their life this way. And to see the kind of response, taking full responsibility. So Ezekiel, the Lord said, I want you to take radical responsibility for this moment. Mary and Joseph take full and immediate responsibility once they realize that Jesus is not where he should be. I believe that the spirit-filled life, the spirit-driven life, the Holy Spirit-filled life is marked by these stories. First of all, we have got to have empathy for the sinful and not the social conditions of this country, but the sinful conditions of this country. 
This isn't simply about social justice. This is about spiritual justice. It's about biblical justice and righteousness, friends. And we have got to say, I'm all in. I'm being touched by the spiritual condition of my world in which I dwell and live. I'm not separated from this. I'm in the midst of it. I'm immersed in it. And Ezekiel responded to the Lord's call on his life to do something very bizarre. And I'm not asking you to just, hey, come up with something bizarre to do. But I am saying whatever the Lord tells us to do to be fully engaged in the spiritual reality of our hour in which we live, Man, I'm all in. I'm going, I'm going to cannonball into that. Okay. Now here you have a different kind of story in the New Testament, an entirely different kind of story. But you see the immediacy of the response. See, confusion follows anyone, first of all, who runs ahead of God as a result of not focusing on Jesus. Now you can look at this caravan of family members And I know they got lax and they got casual and that's maybe the way you did life. But the bottom line is they became too casual and made too many assumptions about the presence of Jesus in their midst. And they assumed he was somewhere nearby. But there was no intimate awareness of where Jesus was. He was kind of here, there, kind of in group think. And what happened is the primary caregivers lost track and the relatives lost track assuming that he was with them. And I'm telling you, friends, in this day and age in which we live, we cannot assume that Jesus is just with the group when he's not part of my eyesight. Paul tells me, or the writer of Hebrews tells me to fix my eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, now has sat down at the right hand of the Father. There's something about keeping in my sight lines, not my assumptions, Jesus. Because if I am just casual, I can get out ahead of God, not realizing he's not with me, present with me like he could be um, because I'm not focusing on him. And when we recognize we've lost something in God, we must go back to the place we've lost it. It's a fundamental principle in the book of Revelation when Jesus himself was correcting the church. Musicians, you can kind of come and gather. We're going to go into some worship here. When, When Jesus is correcting the churches, he tells them, Go back and do what you did at first. It's not some novel thing that you've never experienced before. Go back to the origin and the roots of that humble encounter with Jesus Christ. And for me and for you, that probably involved something as simple as I start reading my Bible in a way I have never read it before. I had a thirst and a hunger for scripture in my life. For those that are here today, maybe watching, what's going to distinguish you in the days ahead is your knowledge and understanding of Scripture, the Word of God in your life. People are living off fortune cookie little pithy little things, concepts, theoretical little headlines about God 
And it's not the word of God richly dwelling in them. And so whatever it takes, one way that I know if I have lost Jesus in the caravan, if the madness in the crowd and the sociality of my life, that I'm assuming Jesus is inside the group somewhere with me here, but I've lost my intimate awareness of where he is at. I have to take swift action like Mary and Joseph. I have to feel an anxiousness about the absence because, you see, a kingdom leader doesn't simply feel the presence of something. You feel the absence of something. When the lepers were all healed and the one came back, what did Jesus say? This is great, but where's the nine? When Jesus went into Simon the Pharisee's house, he said, this person loved me with tears and ointment. You didn't even offer me a towel. You offered me no refreshing, no oil. It's feeling the absence, not simply the presence of something. And so here this caravan is really symbolic of this social world that we live in. It's a big group and everybody's just kind of moving in concert together. But nobody is keeping their eye on Jesus. And we're just operating on assumptions. And I need to take a legitimate roll call. Jesus. Jesus. I'm walking with you, walking near you. I hand it to mom and dad. I've been there too. I'm sure they ran a day's journey back to Jerusalem to find him. And then those three days, the anxiety just must have been off the charts. And you could feel mom running in the temple and pouring her words out to her child, to her young boy. I want to feel, I want to feel and behave like that when I sense that I've lost Jesus in the caravan. I want to take full responsibility, radical responsibility for the conditions in which I find myself. One last thing I want to say, time doesn't allow me to bring this all together. When I find Jesus and I sense his presence again, I know his presence is with me. I must come to terms with what he is doing and adjust what I'm doing to what he is doing in my life and in this world. I can't let the caravan, friends, the caravan, and we could call the caravan corporate worship or corporate protest. There's lots of caravans right now. We're just moving as caravans in some kind of solidarity of our mind, thinking that solidarity and size is accomplishing something of kingdom significance. But let me tell you something, friends. You could be part of a caravan going entirely in the wrong direction. And Jesus is not with that group, but nobody's even noticing. I've got to circle back and find him. Know him, love him, see him. I've got to take full responsibility for my spiritual life. And I can't live a day, can't live a day. Once I realize, Lord, you're not there, where are you at? I can't live a day like that. I got to go back as fast as possible, find out where I lost him, go back and do the deeds that I did at first, finding the first love that I experienced with Jesus. This is going to be a constant demand of your life and mine walking in the first love.
I just want to pray with you and pray that in the noise in the caravan right now of our society, that you personally and me, I've not lost sight of Jesus. Near me, with me, close to me. I'm close to him. He's nearby. I know it's a Sunday school story, but man, it is so powerful for this day in which we live. Jesus, I just pray as we begin to worship, Lord. The Lord, we would feel that homecoming, that connection, the nearness of your presence, the nearness of you. Your presence, Jesus, your person is made real by the presence and person of the Holy Spirit, which leads us and reminds us and guides us into the words of Jesus, the life, sacrifice, and resurrection of Jesus. Lord, help that to work in concert in my life. And Jesus, we just begin to extol you. We love you. We praise you. You are mighty God, and we thank you for all that you are doing. Let's stand together, cross this room, and today, just look around the caravan of your life. Is he missing? Am I living off assumptions? Is Jesus there and near? We're going to worship for about 15, 20 minutes. Just kind of reverse it. Let's make this our altar call. When chapel is dismissed at 1140, you'll dismiss at 1140. Please, I'm begging you. Six feet. Don't get closer than six feet. I don't care if you're proposing. Propose from seven feet away. Okay. I, 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 I don't mean to shift the atmosphere, but I know that there's, I think it's going to be funny. We're going to hear of people like, oh yeah, we met each other. We fell in love with masks on. We saw each other and, and, and we're going to have all kinds of fun stuff to talk about in the years ahead. Ain't so fun right this second, but we're going to. But six feet, no more than 15 minutes. Hang out with your friend. Tell him everything, everything you want them to know from seven feet away. And you got 10 minutes to say it. That's, I, I need us to do this. I'm trying to practice it too, guys. And so, because I want this place to flourish and survive and thrive this school year. We're going to do this. Great chapel tomorrow, Tom. Eli will be here. Greatest person I've, I've honestly met on sharing your faith in one minute. He's going to train us how to do it. And then Sean Smith on Friday. God bless. Let's worship the Lord.